or some of us have lived a little bit. I remember 1988. Everybody knew Jesus was coming back. There's a book written, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. So it's in print. So, I mean, it's true, right? So everybody maxed out their credit cards because we were not going to have to pay it back. Jesus is coming. Well, 1988 came, and 1988 went, and we're still here. A few years later, how many of you remember Y2K? Yeah, oh, everybody's putting bomb shelters in the backyard. Got a whole bedroom that's made into a food pantry. Y2K, the grid's going down, everything is, society as we know it is over. Y2K came, and nothing happened. I don't think one computer shut down. <laughs> a couple years later, Mayan calendar, oh, 2012 is the end of the world. The sun's going to solar flare into the earth, and we're all going to burn up and die. The Mayans had it figured out. 2012 came and 2012 went. And all I want to tell you is we're still going to be here in 12 years unless Jesus returns. We know how this thing ends. God, that's why we need God's word. All the fears and all the anxieties of life can be Distinguished through the truth that comes from God's word. Amen? Amen? That's why we gather. That's why we want to come. That's why we want to be here to center ourselves and quiet ourselves from the noise of the world to find true north, our, our, our compass. It is the very words that come from the mouth of God. I feel like I have to say something about Roe v. Wade. I did in first service, so I guess I will again. I guess what I want to say about it is, praise God. <laughs> praise God. There will be some states that don't kill babies anymore. Woo! The, everybody, all these articles that I read, they're all like, oh, Supreme Court. First of all, let me tell everybody that hates what the Supreme Court just did, welcome to my life since Reagan. Sorry it triggered you. We've been triggered for a long time. It's overreach. It's overreach. No, Roe v. Wade was the overreach. Dobbs is the correction. The Supreme Court, I know AOC doesn't understand how the government works. <laughs> Supreme Court doesn't make laws. It judges law. Congress makes law. Let's get it right. And praise God, we did on that one decision. Exodus chapter 13. Verse 17, let's pray, we'll get started. Father, you are true and you are good. None of us have the right answers. None of us are going to go the right way. We all get it wrong. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for guiding us by speaking to us. You don't leave us blind, deaf, and dumb. You reveal who you are. You reveal your ways. You reveal your wisdom, your creative self. Thank you for leading us 
your people in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who saves us from sin and death and makes us new creations. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go. Now, we've just been through ten plagues. Remember when Moses first went to Pharaoh, right? Israel had a great time in Egypt in the beginning. Joseph, one of the great grandsons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph, and he was betrayed by his brothers because his father, he was the favorite. He gets sent off to Egypt as a slave first, but then he's lied about and unjustly thrown in prison. But then God gives him wisdom to answer uh, the, the Pharaoh's uh, anxieties about a dream that he's had. And he gives Joseph this fiscal economic plan that saves Egypt from famine. There would be no Pharaoh, there would be no Egypt if it had not been for God sending Joseph. And for 13 years, turning Joseph's life upside down as a slave and a prisoner, there is purpose in pain. Amen? 13 years of turmoil... So that God could save a nation from famine in which he would build and flourish his people within. But Joseph dies and a new Pharaoh comes to power that doesn't know Joseph. Doesn't know that it was because of a Hebrew that there, he would, he's even able to rule as a Pharaoh. And he sees Israel as a threat. Man, they're growing, they're prosperous. So he puts his thumb down on and 400 years God's people were bitterly and harshly enslaved. And God will allow that kind of injustice for a time. He's patient and long-suffering, but he's not going to allow it forever. Eventually, he says, it's time, enough. I'm going to bring the hammer down on Pharaoh, and my people are going to be free. Amen. So after, but Pharaoh doesn't want to relent, holds on. He's the one in charge. He's got the power. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Well, Pharaoh has found out who Yahweh is, and he's going to find out one more time in chapter 14 in a final showdown. Ten plagues come through. Finally, Pharaoh lets the people go, and so out they went, God leading them. Look at verse 17, and there's really just two points. Let's try to get through this quick. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, underline that. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What does God not want his people to do in their freedom to see the, the harshness of life and the things they're going to have to do to maintain their freedom? How many of you know it's hard work to be free? Got to defend yourself in your freedom. You got, you got to have some uh, self-reliance to get stuff done. And that's why no longer are we slaves to sin and death. But Romans 6 says we're slaves to righteousness. Remember this as we walk through. There is no freedom without virtue. We're free from sin and death. And we're made free to serve a new master, God himself, and obey his word, which brings even more freedom and prosperity and fulfillment. God doesn't want his people to go back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt? Keith Green, anybody? Nope. Okay. 
But God led the people around by the way, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So now God's people are free from Egypt. They're leaving with their pockets full of gold and silver, and they have weapons because freedom means self-defense. There's a lot of evils out there. You're going to have to become self-reliant in freedom. Nobody's going to take care of you as a free people out in the wilderness. God leads them out of Egypt, but he doesn't. Now, if you look on a map, North Africa right there, the Nile River runs south to north and empties out into the Mediterranean Sea. Before it empties out into the Mediterranean, it splits into a couple different rivers that looks like an upside-down triangle. Uh, there's a map in the back of your Bibles if you want to see what. It's called the Egyptian Delta. This is where Python and Ramses, the cities archaeologists believe Israel was building. So when you look at the map, they're right there by Canaan. The land that God's eventually, all they have to do is go east a few steps and north, and they're there. But God doesn't take them east and north. He takes them south. They go way down to the Red Sea before they cut east. God takes them the long way around. Now, we all, we're Americans. We like shortcuts. Amen? We don't take long cuts. Unless you're John Kennedy, who was sitting in class where you are this morning. He likes to get in you know, his little VW cars and ride through the mountains and look at the trees. And Now, when I get in the car, it's because I'm going somewhere, and I want to get there as fast as I can. We don't like long cuts. We like shortcuts. And just in you, I don't know who you are, where you are this morning. But if you feel like, because we all have a vision, we all know where we want to get. We all know where we want to go, what job we want to have, what, what things we want to accomplish, what, you know, what, what, what we want to build with our lives. We want to get there quick. And it may seem like it's taken a lot longer for you. Listen, God loves to take his people the long way around. God has a purpose and a plan in taking his people the long way around. If you think like you're spinning wheels and that God's not making anything happen and he's not answering your prayers, number one, maybe you're praying the wrong prayer. Number two, you may just be in process because God's got to teach you some things before you get ultimately to what he has for you. God takes his people the long way around. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved up on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So God is leading them by fire at night and by cloud in the day. And we'll talk more about the pillar of fire and cloud in chapter 14. But what I want, the second point of the end of chapter 13 is simply this. They took Joseph's bones with them. Dennis Prager says, we not only have a debt to the living, but we owe a debt to the dead. Joseph knew God's promise was true. Joseph didn't see God's promise. He knew his great-grandfather was promised to be made a people 
unto God and that that people would be given a land that flows with milk and honey. And Joseph knew God's promises were true. And even though he didn't get to see it, he knew that God would fulfill the promise. So he told his people on his deathbed. This, you know, Joseph became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He's wealthy. He's got all this wealth. He probably has an incredible tomb because Egypt is all their whole entire religion. is all centered upon death. That's why there's pyramids still today in the Valley of the Kings and all that stuff. Death's a big deal. So Joseph is going to have all, all this opulence, all this wealth, all these things. But he, he says, I don't belong here. I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of God's chosen. So when God fulfills his promise, like I know he will, take my bones with you. And so Moses fulfills that request of Joseph here by taking the dead bones and moving them to the land that God is going to give them. We owe a debt. Listen, here's why. When you're sitting down with that person and they think everything about Christianity should change because they just feel like it should. I told first service, I'm going to start a new religion. I'm going to call it the two plus two equals three religion. And when they say, that defies logic. This is math. It's reality. You can't change it. I'm going to go, but I just really, really feel like two plus two equals three. I just know deep down in my bones it, it equals three, not four. I just feel like it does. Here's why we don't change what is written. Because there are people that have gone before us and paved the way for us to have this in blood. We owe a debt not just to move forward and lead people to Christ through his gospel. We, we owe a debt to those who have been torn apart by the lions in Rome like Perpetua. Those who have dangled as nightlights in the gardens of Nero. We owe a debt to Athanasius and Augustine. We owe a debt to Luther and Calvin and Swingley. We owe a debt to R.C. Sproul, amen? We owe a debt to those 2,000 years of Christian history, 3,500 years of written history of God leading and speaking and guiding his people. We don't have, it's not even a choice. We don't have the power or the authority to change what is and what has been and what will be. We owe a debt to the dead, not just to the living. Chapter 14, you ready to get started? Here we go. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Oh, excuse me. And encamp in front of Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zathon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So God takes his people the long way around and puts them in possibly the very worst position you could be in. He puts them with the Red Sea on one side, 
And the land is high and it goes down to the sea. So they're, they're basically sitting in a, a bowl in the low ground with water on one side and nothing on the high ground, nothing on the other side but Egypt. Worst military strategy ever. Why does God do this? And it's not just here. We talked about Jericho a, a few weeks ago. God constantly is putting his people in the most vulnerable of positions. Why? Because he wants us to know something. When all things seem lost, they are not. God wants his people to see in an impossible situation, his mighty, righteous hand of salvation come down and save. He wants his people to know that they can't do it. They have no power to do it. It is God who saves. And he puts us in these positions to build our faith in his salvation, who he is, his character, and his salvation. You think this morning you are in the worst possible position you could ever find yourself in. Praise God. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's going to show you. Where you can't, he can. Pharaoh hears the word of where God's people are, and he's like, they're just wandering. Moses is an idiot. They're just wandering around. They have no idea. They are sitting ducks, and they are. Geographically, they're just sitting ducks. So Moses goes, or a pharaoh goes, okay, they, I mean, this, is, this must be the will of Ra or something because there they are. We're going to go and we're going to get them back. And I will, verse 4, this is God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will. I'm going to put my people in a position that Pharaoh will not be able to turn away from. He, in his evil heart, this evil man who tried, remember Exodus chapter 1, oh, poor Pharaoh, why would God do that to Pharaoh? Remember chapter 1, infant genocide, Pharaoh's not the good guy, he's a bad guy. He wants all Israel's children to be thrown in the river after they're born. He's a bad guy. And God says, all right, ten plagues have happened, I've dismantled all the gods of Egypt, but one more final showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Tumbleweed. High noon. One more showdown. I will harden his heart. He will not be able to not pursue because of the position I've put my people in. And I will, why God? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I hope you've been marking all those Pharaoh, when Moses first comes to him, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Well, ten plagues, Pharaoh knows a little something about Yahweh now. And he's going to find out in a final battle exactly who Yahweh is. All of Egypt is going to know. All the unrighteous, all the wicked are going to know who Yahweh is. I am the Lord, and they did so. Now think about this. Because the exit, this is, this is insane. We're going to see the supernatural power of God on full display in Exodus chapter 14. 
Why? Why did God do this at this time? Think about the time we're in. All scholars agree the earliest form of actual human humans trying to communicate in, in written, through written uh, pictures and words is cuneiform. After cuneiform is hieroglyphics. The, the Egyptians, the biggest, baddest nation on the planet, is still drawn in pictures to communicate their history and to, and to communicate things that have been. What comes next is Semitic languages. Hebrew. Moses figures out in the wilderness how to make his language uh, and put it down in written form. So that this is the beginning. We only have, I don't know if you know this or not, we only have 3,500 years of written human history. We can't know what happens before that because they couldn't write it down. They didn't have the technology. But God, in the very beginning of when humans are able to write, he does something so big. Why? To make a name for himself. Do you know Christians and Jews are the only people who serve the all the other gods from the ancient world are gone except Yahweh. Nobody worships Gilgamesh. And that's not the guy from the Smurfs. Nobody worships Ra. Nobody wor- Why? Because Yahweh showed himself. Yahweh dismantled all the other gods. But Yahweh is still remembered today. Seven, depending on when you date the Exodus, 700 to 1,000 years later, look what Nehemiah writes in chapter 9 as he's rebuilding the walls uh, of Israel. He says, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Some of you would say, what about the Muslim? That was 600 years after Christ. We still worship. Yahweh has made a name for himself by delivering his people against all odds. Israel shouldn't still exist, but they do. Why? Because Yahweh saves. Still today, after a couple hundred years after Nehemiah, Christ comes. And he builds a church, he grafts, just like he promised Abraham, all nations into his people through Christ. No longer Jew and Gentile, but one in Christ, one new man, one new humanity in Christ Jesus. All are welcome in Christ, amen? It's beautiful. 3,500 years we've been worshiping and serving Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh is the only God that made a name for himself. People make a lot of gods, and people write a lot of stories about gods, but they're fictional, they're, they're idols, they're made of wood, they're made of stone, they're made of ideas. Yahweh makes a name for himself. This is the God that we worship. We have got to speed up. I can feel the drainage, the sinus infections coming. I get three of them a year. Here it is, awesome. When the king of Egypt 
was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So isn't it funny how we change our minds so quickly? They've buried their sons after the 10th plague. And so quickly grief turns into revenge, into anger, into what have we done? The people who build our cities, we just let them go. We got to get them back. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So here's God's people leaving Egypt. Yeah, actually, they're like this because their pockets are full of gold and silver, and that's heavy. <laughs> but they're walking out chests out. Yeah, we belong to Yahweh. He done shows you punks what's up. <laughs> they're walking out big and bad and bold. And Pharaoh sees them now in this, this little lowland bowl, trapped like rats. And he's like, here we go. And he takes not only all the chariots and all the army of Egypt, but he chooses 600 choice chariots. This is, again, Egypt in this time, most powerful, most economic, wealthy nation on the face of the planet. In our day and age, these are the, the A-bombs, right? These are the, these are the biggest, baddest, uh, most defendable tanks you can have. The, the, the greatest military advantage on planet Earth belongs to Pharaoh. And he loads up the entire arsenal to come after uh, Israel, who is defiantly leaving, has defiantly left Egypt. Now, underline that going out defiantly. I've actually served... Oh, we don't have time for a hermeneutical lesson. So, verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Circle that. Line it back up with, they walked out defiantly, and now just, it's amazing how situations change everything. They see Pharaoh. What was a hillside of the landscape is now the biggest, baddest, mightiest army on planet Earth at the time. And when they look the other way, there's nothing but water. Trapped. And this defiance, this courage... This proudness, all of a sudden it was gone in a moment. How many of you have been there? You felt so confident. You felt so strong. Everything was going your way and then the ceiling crashes in and <gasps> what can I do? I have no answers. Some of you this morning, that's where you're at. You just, you have no answers. God has answers. It's time to be silent and let God speak when we have no answers. God's people are terrified. Some stains just appeared in their shorts. Zeremy, <laughs> I love your laugh, man. I always know it's you. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Of course they did, because by God's grace, they had nowhere else to go. See, when we think we can solve stuff, don't we try? God has to bring us to that place where there's nothing else. You've tried everything.
everything, you got no other options. And that's when the righteous right hand comes down to save. Oh, I love God's word. 19 minutes. Go, 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 go. They said to Moses, so what do, God's people have no options, so what do they do? They start pointing fingers. Who do they point fingers at first? Moses. Anybody want to trade jobs? <laughs> Leader always takes it. What did Moses do? What God told him. And that's all. He was scared to death. He had stains in his shorts too. Hey, go before the most powerful. Oh, you know that place where you're wanted for murder anyway? Yeah, go back there. Talk to the king and tell him to let all his slaves go. All Moses did was obey God, and now the people turn on him in a moment. That's never happened to you? I know a guy. <laughs> they said to Moses, and this is, hear the sarcasm here. Because again, the religion of Egypt, it's, it circles around death. Egypt is nothing but graves. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Not enough graves there. You got to bring us out here to put us in the ground. Why have you done this to us in bringing us out here? Is not this what we said to you? Remember, we were so smart back in Egypt. Leave us alone. Didn't we tell you that? That we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Didn't we tell you way back then that we didn't want to do this? We don't want freedom. Think about what they're saying. They want to go back. The only thing they know in Egypt are the ovens that make the bricks, that build the cities. All Egypt is is harsh, bitter enslavement. All Egypt is is uh, fear of having a male son that gets thrown into the river. God wants freedom. The people want to be, remain slaves. In your Mind, think about this. Let me read you a quote from a Jewish commentarian from about a thousand years ago. His name is Abraham Ibn Ezra. I'm going to read this quote to you twice. There is a reason a whole generation dies in the wilderness. They still think as slaves. They would not have the gumption to fight the Canaanites and conquer the promised land. A new generation had to emerge that had never known exile, could handle the burdens and responsibilities of their newfound freedom, which includes self-defense and self-reliance. God has to show up and save, because left up to the people, they would go straight back into harsh servitude. Think about you and your walk with Christ, is it easy for you to give up in walking obediently according to God's word and go back into sin, which leads to death? Or are you, do you have that self-reliance 
that, that true sense of freedom in Christ that causes you, even when you fall, you know, everybody falls. But the righteous, they fall seven times, but they get back up and they dust themselves off and they continue the fight. In July, we're going to take a break from Exodus and we're going to study Jude for four weeks. Contending for the faith, you're going to love. Uh, the book's already written, it's already printed. Uh, you're going to love the graphic. It's, just, it's, a, it's a Muhammad Ali shot, you know that famous stance? And on the ground, there's a guy, and he's got a, a wolf's mask knocked off of him as he's KO'd. It's awesome. <laughs> are you a fighter? Or are you quick to flee? God wants his people strong. That's why he puts us in impossible situations and then shows himself strong so that we can have faith to move after him. Moses said to the people, fear not. Most given command in all of scripture. Why? Because God's people are scared to death of everything. That's why God keeps saying, have I not made my name great? If I not showed you time and time again, I will save, I will deliver. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Talk about a coffee cup verse. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Today is the day of salvation. Your enemies who mistreated you for 400 years, you after today, you will never see them again. The Lord said to Moses, that was Moses talking to the people. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. So now Moses looks up on the hill and sees all Egypt's army. And then he looks over this way and sees nothing but water. Where? <laughs> go forward where? There's nowhere to go. So God says, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? The Egyptians will know I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now, this is kind of janky in the ESV, which tries very hard to be a, a direct word from Hebrew to word from English. doesn't work all the time because English has a lot more words than, than Hebrew, uh, but the but it's kind of a little bit hard to understand, but remember that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire. Well, now we know it was the angel of the Lord that was moving these things and leading. Angel of the Lord that we saw in Exodus chapter 3, a pre-cameo appearance of Christ himself, the one who speaks as God. He's the cloud that's leading. And something happened. Cosmic atmospheric shifts occur. Why? Because nature's not a God. I know some of you have friends that like to bark at the moon. 
and they'll downward dog and hold their crystals. <laughs> but we don't create creation's not a god. God proves pantheism is not an option for worship. It is creation that serves God, not the other way around. Look at the NIV version because it helps us a little more. Because why doesn't Egypt just come down and pounce before the waters split? Here's why God, the angel of the Lord, takes the cloud and the fire and he, he separates them. And he covers Israel and he covers Egypt. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. God protects his people from the immediate destruction so that Moses can raise his staff and see the way that they are to go forward. Now look with me at 21. And when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Underline that word wind. It's the word in Hebrew, ruach. It's also, it's translated in Genesis 1-2 as spirit. It's also translated as breath. Liberal theologians and preachers would like to tell you that this is just a strange, atmospheric uh, uh, anomaly that happened at just the right time in just the right place. But this is the actual breath of God moving the waters, preparing a way forward for his people. We know this from the next chapter. In chapter 15, look at verses 8 and 9. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. It wasn't just wind. It was the breath of God, the spirit of God. Ruach. Down at the end of verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake and I will get the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew, verse 10, with your wind. It's the breath of God that makes a way through the water. Which in Genesis chapter 1 at creation, this is what the Spirit of God does as it hovers over the waters. It creates something new. Here, God's people are going to be saved through water, showing the new creation. They're going to be a new people with a new land now that they're out of Egypt. That's why we still baptize people today, because it is the Spirit of God. As we die in His death to sin in the water, we come up new creations in Christ today, right now. The old is gone, the new has come. As God recreates us through the power of his gospel and his spirit. The wind all night made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Walls of water. We'll talk about that in a second. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. For, hey, we're getting an idea who Yahweh is. Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So here's what happens. 
right? The clouds, the angel Lord separating Egypt uh, from Israel. The waters part. Uh, Israel begins to walk through with walls of water on each side. As they're coming, uh, uh, as they enter and as Egypt is watching this, they begin to uh, follow them into the waters as the cloud lifts and allows them to do so. And as Israel gets to the other side, the wind begins to stop and the water begins from the back forward where Egypt is. Uh, the ground, the dry ground begins to become wet and muddy again. And, and wouldn't you know it, what made Egypt powerful, what gave Egypt its strength, what made Egypt beat their chest and say, there's no way we can lose. All of a sudden their greatest strength, their chariots, become their greatest disabilities. Their tanks won't move any further. And they began to freak out. And they began to fear, saying, Yahweh, once we've seen the ten plagues, but once again, Yahweh is fighting for them. We, the strongest, most powerful nation on the planet, have no chance against their God. As no enemy that you face does. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Now watch this, underline that word, in the morning. It's in verse 24 too, you need to see it. Because God wants you to see it. Because God wanted his people to see it. That's why in the morning... God waited until the right time where his people could watch the salvation that he would bring. These Egyptians, you see today, you're never going to see them again. God's people watched God's promise become true. The water, verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. A liberal preacher one time was invited to a very passionate church that loved the Lord Jesus, believed his gospel. They were following Jesus and excited about it. I don't know if you, now liberal doesn't mean what it means in politics in Christianity. Liberal means someone who reads their Bible but doesn't really believe what it says. They believe in God, but they're more deistic. He's up there somewhere. They don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe anything supernatural really happened. There are, just like the plagues, there's natural phenomenon that can explain these things that are happening as God said they would at the exact right time in the exact right place, the exact same way that he said it would. There's natural phenomenon that can explain. So this liberal preacher comes to this very excited church that believes their Bible and everything that it says. And he's preaching through the Exodus, you know, because the waters are a metaphor and that's all they are for blah, 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 blah. Somebody in the back of this Jesus-loving church says, praise the Lord. God's he parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. And it frustrated the liberal preacher. He was like, uh, 
Actually, this is probably not the Red Sea, but the Sea of Reeds, which is very close, and it's a marshland. So actually, you know, these walls of waters, it's just, a, it's just a beef up the story a little bit. It was actually about six inches of water is what they were walking through. They didn't really walk across on dry ground. The voice in the back of the church came out again and said, Praise the Lord! God drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water. liberal (laughs) ding-dong. When you have no hope, there is hope. When you are at the end and there is no way, God makes a way. When you're trapped between a rock and a hard place, the path is crooked. We serve a God who has who is and who always will until his return make the crooked paths straight. He made 3,500 years ago, he made his name great so that you would believe and have faith in his work because his hand has not been shortened today. His mighty, righteous right hand of salvation and deliverance can reach down right where you are, right in the middle of your circumstances and deliver you and save you from sin and from death and bring you into a life of obedience to his word, which brings blessing and fulfillment. This is why we study God's word Because you are never at the end. The end only brings a new beginning as we put all of our weight upon Jesus Christ and watch him part whatever waters we stand before. He is good and he loves you. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Father, if there's any man or woman in this room who is trusting in themselves, Father, be gentle with them, but show them the end of their self so that they could learn what true faith means. That they would see you are the only way. God, build our faith in you as we trek through the crooked paths of our world. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen.